If you're listening to this, then there's a good chance you've already heard the episode I recorded a few years ago on Brushy Bill Roberts, back when this monstrosity was known as the Bloody Beaver Podcast. Don't worry, this is not a re-recording. It's a follow-up, sort of an epilogue. Now, ever since I put out that original episode, I've gotten a ton of comments, complaints, questions, insults, threats, you name it. I even get occasional emails to this day with people asking if I've heard other various aspects of Brushy Bill's story or other pieces of evidence. And to be honest, it's a subject I've always wanted to return to. So I figured why not record another episode to attempt to address or answer some of these questions and comments, as well as to lay out my position in a more of a clear manner. If you have not heard the original Brushy Bill episode, I will link to it here in the show notes. If you're brand new to the subject, you might want to give that a listen first as I really delve into who the man was, his origin story, all that good stuff. This is more of a companion episode. I've done a bit more additional research over the last couple of years and a lot of reading, so no matter where you stand, I think you'll find this interesting. And hopefully you'll hear some stuff you didn't already know. That said, I'll reiterate a few things before we begin. Brushy Bill has piqued my curiosity since I was a little kid ever since I first watched Young Guns 2. My friends and I played Young Guns at recess, and I own more than one copy of the Bon Jovi soundtrack throughout the years. I'm excited beyond words to see Young Guns Part 3 on the big screen when it finally comes out. More on that towards the end of this episode. I cannot stress this enough. I want Brushy Bill to be Billy the Kid. I truly do. I'm not some sort of Wild West Grinch just trying to sup the fun out of everything. It would be so cool if arguably the most famous outlaw of all time had really escaped death and lived to be an old man. If we could prove that, it would be massive. Unfortunately, I don't think it can be proven. Matter of fact, I'm pretty positive the opposite is true. It's my opinion that this episode will demonstrate beyond a reasonable doubt that Brushy Bill Roberts was not Billy the Kid. Abandon all hope and join me if you dare. My name is Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza. So like I said, I've already previously discussed Brushy Bill Roberts, and since I think we all know who Billy the Kid is, I'll go ahead and skip the long preamble. But just in case, here's a very quick overview. The outlaw Billy the Kid was allegedly killed at the age of 21, by Sheriff Pat Garrett in the year 1881. Skip ahead another seven decades and you have an elderly man known as Brushy Bill Roberts coming forward shattering the common historical narrative. He claimed to be the kid, said that he had escaped Garrett all them years before and had been living under the radar ever since. Brushy, with the help of an attorney named William V. Morrison, spent around two years compiling evidence, conducting interviews, researching, documenting all kinds of stuff, for the purpose of both proving these claims and obtaining a pardon for Mr. Roberts, the same pardon that Billy the Kid was promised way back in the day. Brushy was able to obtain a meeting with the then-governor of New Mexico, but it was no use. The whole ordeal was a media circus, and Roberts ended up having a stroke right there in the governor's mansion. Less than a month later, on December 27, 1950, Brushy would suffer a fatal heart attack, and needless to say, the pardon never came. And yeah, we've been arguing about the man's true identity ever since. Now that attorney I mentioned, or paralegal, if you really want to be exact, William Morrison, he spent a lot of time working with and interviewing Brushy Bill. This information was used when Morrison, along with author and professor C.L. Sonishin, 
published a book titled Alias Billy the Kid, about five years after Brushy passed away. This book not only tells Robert's story, but it also lays out the evidence that he was who he said he was. It's sort of like the Holy Bible as far as Brushy Bill goes, so I will be referencing it several times on this episode. It's his story as told by him. Now, all of that said, I have a big favor to ask of you. Forget about Pat Garrett. Seriously, for the purpose of this episode, let's just pretend that Garrett never even existed. But Josh, you can't do that. Look, there are a lot of problems with Pat, including his version of how things went down on the night of Billy's death. I'll tell you right now, I don't believe the events happened the way that Garrett claimed they did. However, this episode is not about whether or not Pat Garrett killed Billy the Kid. It's simply about whether or not Brushy Bill Roberts is Billy the Kid. And believe it or not, the two don't necessarily go hand in hand. Pat Garrett could have been lying through his teeth. He and his deputies could have killed a Mexican cowboy, as Brushy would claim. Or they could have simply just let Billy go. None of that would mean that Brushy was, by default, really Billy the Kid. All it does is lend credence to the idea that perhaps Billy did not die in 1881. I will fully concede to that possibility. The reason I ask this of you, other than it not being relevant to whether or not Brushy was Billy, is because I found that oftentimes all arguments surrounding Brushy Bill inevitably disintegrate into arguing about Pat Garrett. Let's not get lost in the weeds here. I'll do an episode one of these days on Pat Garrett and whether or not I think he actually killed Billy the Kid. Just not today. Today, we're focusing on Brushy. So yeah, for the sake of this episode, I'll concede that it is possible that Billy the Kid did not die in 1881 and it could even be true that he lived to be an old man. Okay? So with that in mind, I was listening to an interview of author Daniel Edwards on the Confessionals podcast recently. Shout out to the various listeners who tipped me off to this episode. Link in the show notes if you're interested. Mr. Edwards, by the way, wrote the excellent book, Billy the Kid, an autobiography, which I will link to in the show notes. I own a copy, I've read it cover to cover, and I've returned to it several times since. If you're a big fan of all things Brushy Bill, then it's worth a read for sure. Full disclosure, though, Daniel Edwards is a big believer in Brushy's story, and he states on this particular episode of the Confessionals podcast more than once that the only alternative to Brushy's story is, well, because Pat Garrett said so. With all due respect, Mr. Edwards, I disagree wholeheartedly. Two things can be true at the same time. Pat Garrett can be a liar, and so can Brushy Bill. Billy the Kid could have lived to be an old man, but that doesn't mean that Brushy Bill was that old man. Pat Garrett was no saint. He may have lied about killing the kid. He almost certainly lied about the circumstances surrounding Billy's death. But that does not necessarily prove that Brushy was Billy the Kid. I know I'm repeating myself. I just want to make sure that I'm making this point understood. We can sit here and argue about Pat Garrett till the cows come home. That still doesn't prove anything about Brushy. Like I said, at very most, all it does is make the idea that Billy possibly lived to be an old man a bit more believable. Which, once again, just for the sake of this episode, I'll concede to. The next favor I have to ask is that we agree to just have fun. I mean, this is all just in good fun, right? I'm probably going to get worked up at some point. I might rant a little bit. I might get a little sarcastic. Might even use some adult language. But when I say I'm giddy beyond words to finally be talking about Brushy Bill again, I mean it. There's no denying that this is one of the most fun topics I've ever covered. No matter where you stand, we're all here because we find the story of Brushy Bill to be interesting. And we're all history dorks, okay? 
In the grand scheme of things, none of this matters. This is like the Old West version of two Dungeons and Dragons nerds arguing over who would win in a fight. An orc barbarian or a damn dwarf paladin. Fun is the name of the game today. Despite what I might say, no matter what jokes I might make or how passionate I sound at whatever point, the last thing I want is anyone walking away from this episode feeling insulted or thinking I've made light of their intelligence. That's absolutely not my intention. I like to joke around, but that's all it is. I sincerely hope you don't take anything I say here personally. So above all else, let's have some fun and not take it too seriously and, you know, just be nice. Once you've heard me out and you still believe without a shadow of a doubt that Brushy Bill was really Billy the Kid, that's fine. I got nothing but love for you. Also, I'm very accessible. You can email me at josh at wildwestextra.com or head on over to my website, wildwestextra.com, and hit that contact button. I'm very open to any rebuttals or counterarguments, whatever. All right, without further ado, let's get started. So what evidence is there to back up Brushy Bill Roberts' claims? I mean, if so many people really believe he was Billy the Kid, and there are a lot of people who believe so, there must be something there, right? Well, let's go over what I like to call the usual suspects. These are what most people will point to when asked, you know, what they believe is the most credible evidence that Brushy was who he said he was. First, you've got the signed affidavits. At least five people who knew Billy the Kid swore that he and Brushy were the same person. And furthermore, a photo comparison study conducted by the University of Texas using known pictures of Brushy and the kid, concluded that there was a very strong likelihood they were one and the same. And if that's not enough for you, you got the scars. Evidently, a 90-year-old Brushy Bill Roberts had 20-something bullet and knife wound scars covering his body, scars seen by both the coroner and the paralegal, Mr. Morrison. And then there's the other similarities shared between Brushy and Billy the Kid. For instance, both men were fluent in Spanish. Both had small hands and showed a proficiency in being able to shimmy out of handcuffs. Both Brushy and Billy were ambidextrous, being able to shoot a revolver with either hand. And finally, there's the little details, the inside information. Brushy Bill Roberts seemed to know things about Billy's life, as well as the Lincoln County War, that nobody should have known had they not been involved. All in all, just taking a bird's eye view of this case, based on everything I just said, it's very easy to see why people would believe Brushy's story especially without looking any further into the matter. I mean, these were all the things that intrigued me at the very beginning. But how do they stand up under closer scrutiny? Well, let's take a look. We'll start with the affidavits, which are, in my opinion, some of the strongest evidence in Brushy's favor. By the way, I'm going to use the term historical Billy throughout this episode. All I mean by this is the Billy the Kid that we all agree on, the young bandit pre-1881. The outlaw involved in the Lincoln County War, Billy the Kid, the historical Billy. Now, as I just mentioned, there are five signed and sworn affidavits claiming that Brushy was the kid. These affidavits are available to read in full in various books, including the two books that I previously mentioned, alias Billy the Kid by Morrison and Sonishin, as well as Billy the Kid in Autobiography by Daniel A. Edwards. You don't have to take my word for anything you're about to hear. Feel free to do your own research and read the affidavits for yourself the strongest of which come from Severo Gallegos and Jose Montoya. We'll save them for last. All right, so first up, you've got to miss Martil Abel, the widow of John C. Abel. She swore that Brushy Bill, a.k.a. William Henry Roberts, Billy the Kid, the Texas Kid, and O.L. Roberts were all one and the same. Now, don't let those names confuse you. Uh, Brushy himself claimed his actual real name was William Henry Roberts. 
and the Texas Kid and O.L. Roberts were all various aliases he went by. So how did Mrs. Martill Abel know that Brushy was Billy the Kid? Did she know the historical Billy the Kid? No, she did not. And she didn't pretend to, okay? Mrs. Abel would have only been about 10 years old in 1881, at the time of Billy's alleged death. Her claims upon further inspection seemed to stem from her late husband, John. Brushy proponents uh, theorized that John did indeed know the historical Billy back in the day, and that possibly Brushy visited with the couple after 1881. Still, though, I believe this affidavit can be dismissed in full because Mrs. Abel never claimed to have met Billy before his supposed death. If she didn't know the historical Billy, how could she know if he and Brushy were the same person? At very best, she's going off the claims of her husband, who, by the time Brushy came around, was already long dead. The same goes for the next two affidavits. You got DeWitt Travis, who said he knew Brushy all of his life, said the old outlaw even taught him how to swim. Well, that's very nice and all, the problem is Mr. Travis wasn't even born yet in 1881. While I have no doubt that he knew Brushy his entire life, I do doubt his claims that Brushy was Billy as he wasn't born until eight years after Pat Garrett supposedly killed the kid. DeWitt, just like Martil Abel, would have had no way to know. Likewise for Robert Lee. No, not the general. This Robert Lee was born in 1874, making him about six or seven years old at the time of Billy's death. Or alleged death, I guess I should say. But even Mr. Lee did not claim to meet Brushy Bill for the first time until 1889. You get what I'm saying, right? These three affidavits don't hold any water as not a one of them claimed to have met or have known the historical Billy the Kid. No matter what they may or may not have believed, no matter their intentions, they simply could not have possibly known who Billy the Kid was. That leaves us with the last two, the ones that do hold water. Both Severo Gallegos and Jose Montoya did know the real historical Billy the Kid. At least they did if you take their word for it, even though they were both children at the time. Mr. Montoya claimed that Billy stayed with his family on occasion and that he would even watch the kid conduct target practice. Jose did meet with Brushy Bill and he did claim that the two were one and the same. Likewise with Severo Gallegos. He claimed to be the half-brother of a man who fought with Billy the Kid during the Lincoln County War. Said that Billy visited their home often, that he would stay the night, have meals there, all that good stuff. And Mr. Gallegos also claimed to witness Billy escape out of the jailhouse in Lincoln in April of 1881. That was the last time Severo saw the kid until, according to him, he met Brushy Bill Roberts in 1950. And finally, after initially saying that Brushy was too young to be the kid, gave him a good look over and said, yeah, he's Billy the kid. Now, I'll be honest. I cannot really refute the claims of either one of these men, other than to say we're just simply going to go by their word. Right? I mean, we're assuming that they're being honest when they say that they knew the historical Billy the Kid, and we're assuming that they were being honest when they said Brushy and the Kid were one and the same. And I have no reason to believe that either man was lying. I'm not trying to allude to that. I mean, I could talk about the issues of false memories, a very real thing. I could bring up the fact that recovered memories are often not admissible in court, and in some states, it's standard procedure for jurors to be alerted to the imperfect nature of memory and the fallibility of eyewitness testimony. And I could go on and on about how our memories can even be affected or manipulated. I could also point out again that both men were mere children when they knew the historical Billy the Kid and that these memories, by the year 1950, were 70 plus years old. But in the end, when it comes to Gallegos and Montoya, I think it just comes down to whether or not you find their memories and their intentions credible. 
By the way, there is a sixth affidavit that many people point to, signed as recently as 1990 by a Miss Josephine Sanchez, over 100 years after the alleged death of uh, Billy the Kid. The 70-year-old Josephine claimed that her grandfather, Frank Randolph, was a personal friend of the kids and, quote, ran around with him. Said that her granddaddy was dating a girl in Hondo, New Mexico, and Billy was dating a, quote-unquote, Sedios girl across the river from San Patricio. Josephine also says that she met with Brushy Bill in 1950 when he and Morrison were making the rounds. She spoke with him and asked who his sweetheart was over in San Patricio. Josephine says that without any hesitation whatsoever, Brushy replied, a, quote, Sadios girl from across the river, end quote. Furthermore, Josephine tried a little Spanish on Brushy and noted that he was fully fluent. Her affidavit ends with, quote, I, Josephine Randolph Sanchez, knew very well that Brushy Bill Roberts was indeed Billy the Kid, end quote. So, hey, there you go. I mean, how could Brushy have possibly known about this Sadios girl? Case fucking closed. Look, I'm not trying to disparage Mrs. Sanchez personally, but come on, bro. She was born decades after the historical Billy the Kid was allegedly killed. Hell, her grandfather Frank wasn't even born until 1867. That would have made him like around 13 years old when he was supposedly running around with Billy chasing girls. Really, what we've got here is a lady passing down anecdotal stories from her grandfather who himself may or may not have even known Billy the Kid. Is it interesting? Sure. Is it proof? No. I think you'll find that a lot of Brushy's claims seem to hang by a thread on weak anecdotal stories such as this one. Stories that, even if they were true, still don't prove that Brushy was who he claimed. So there you have it, as far as the affidavits are concerned. It's my opinion that they are often presented in a very misleading way that would have you believe that all these people personally knew the historical Billy the Kid. As you can see, that's only the case when it comes to two of them, and those two were children at the time. There are no former lawmen from the Lincoln County days who vouched for Brushy. None of Billy the Kid's peers or bandit contemporaries, none of his old girlfriends, nothing like that. Just two old men, no offense, but they were old as fuck in 1950, just two old men who were going off their memories from seven decades prior. And one of them even initially said that Brushy was far too young to be the kid. Not such a clear-cut case anymore. Hmm. Now, how about the physical similarities between Brushy and the kid? There are several photos of Brushy Bill available, and they're pretty good quality for the most part. Unfortunately, there's only that one verifiable photo of Billy the Kid, the famous one with him standing there, head cocked to the side, goofy look on his face, holding a rifle. I know, I know, but Josh, what about the croquet pitcher? But Josh, what about the card game pitcher? I know, I've seen them too. They're cool, and they may be Billy the Kid, I don't know. I'm just telling you they are not verified. They have no providence, so for the sake of accuracy, Let's just forget about them for now. Focus. Eye on the prize. Now, me personally, just looking at the one picture of Billy compared to the numerous photos of Brushy Bill, I just don't see any similarity whatsoever. And not just that, I don't see how anybody could see it. Brushy is clearly not 90 years old. Then again, the mind will often trick the eye into seeing things that we want to see. And obviously, our naked eyes are not the most accurate tools known to man. Thankfully, we have science to the rescue. Yay, science. That's the good news. The bad news is that the science kind of sucks as well, as far as pictures go. There have been a couple of photo comparison studies. There was one done in 1989, funded by the Lincoln County Heritage Trust Foundation, comparing a picture of Brushy with Billy. They concluded that the two photos were likely not of the same person. 
Now, you don't hear this study being touted all that often. A year later, however, there was another study done using equipment at the Laboratory for Vision Studies in the Advanced Graphic Laboratory in the University of Texas, using the same system used by Interpol, the FBI, and the CIA. And this study concluded that Brushy and the kid were a very close match. Or at least that's the word on the streets. Per the always accurate Wikipedia, the UT test showed a, quote, very close match, yielding a mean squared error of 17.7. Now, a perfect match would yield a 0.0, but obviously you can't take a grainy picture like the tintype of the kid and compare it with an elderly man like Brushy Bill, even if they are the same person, and get a 0.0. But still, a 17.7 is pretty damn good. Well, not so fast. One of the two men who conducted the test, Dr. Alan Bovic, says otherwise. According to him, the results of the photo comparison test were not properly reported and did not come to any positive conclusion as far as Brushy and Billy being the same. And that furthermore, the tools that they used in 1990 were quite crude. In other words, the test done at the University of Texas did not show a very close match, despite what you may read on Wikipedia. By the way, feel free to look up this Dr. Bovic. Dude's a professor at UT and has a damn list of credentials and awards a mile long. And he has flat out said that the results from his study were misstated. If you feel like I'm misquoting him, feel free to contact the man yourself. He's still alive and appears to still be working at the University of Texas. So, as far as I know, we only have these two official studies. And they don't tell us a damn thing. If you know of any additional modern facial comparison studies, please email me josh wildwestextra.com and let me know i'm curious as to why there hasn't been more done in the past 30 years but i'm willing to bet the technology just isn't quite there yet please do not email me pictures of you with a damn ruler and pencil in your hand i'm talking about actual photo comparison studies done by experts people at universities with fancy letters behind their names and using fancy machines i also have no interest in overlay photo comparisons Okay, I've seen the videos. You can do the same with a picture of Emilio Estevez over a picture of the real Billy the Kid, and they both mold into the same person. It works for everybody. I think we can stop with that. Okay, so if you're still following along, you got to admit that neither the photo comparison studies nor the affidavits are exactly home runs when it comes to proving the claims of Brushy Bill. But what about the scars? Oh, yeah, this is a big one. The claim is that Roberts had, I believe the number is either 26 or 27, various scars from bullet and knife wounds covering his body. That's huge. Like, you do not get scars like that just from being a farmer, right? This is the whole, if he wasn't Billy the Kid, who the hell was he argument. Well, first off, let's establish how many times the historical Billy the Kid was shot. If I'm not mistaken, it was just the once that we know of. A leg wound, I believe, after him and the boys killed Sheriff Brady. This makes our job that much easier. We can all together forget about the other 20-some-odd wounds, as now all we have to do is prove that Brushy had a bullet scar on his leg around the same area where we think Billy was shot. This would bring a lot of credibility to Brushy's claims. Unfortunately, we can't prove that. Not for the leg scar, nor for any of the others. Once again, josh at wildwestextra.com. Email me, prove me wrong here. Is there any evidence other than the word of the paralegal William Morrison that Brushy had these scars? Are there any photos of these alleged scars? A million pictures of Brushy Bill, yet nobody ever thought to have him pull off his shirt or drop his britches so they could document the evidence. Where is the proof? That said, according to Brushy Bill Roberts himself, in alias Billy the Kid, he received a gunshot wound to the jaw. Chapter 7, I believe. 
He says, quote, their first shot struck me in the lower jaw, taking out a tooth as it went through my mouth, end quote. Now take a look at the many photos of Brushy Bill and you tell me, does that look like a face that took a bullet? Ain't no small thing getting shot in the jaw, especially not with no 45 cold or 4440. Methinks it would leave a mark, but I don't see one. The one scar that should be able to be seen by the naked eye, and it ain't there. At the end of the day, we have no physical evidence that Brushy Bill Roberts was Billy the Kid. No credible, reliable photo comparison analysis. No photographs of the alleged scars. Nothing. But he had small hands. Okay, and? Small hands the outlaw doesn't make. But Josh, he could shoot just as good with either hand. Says who? Once again, there's a lot of talk here, but no proof. Just because William V. Morrison wrote about it doesn't make it true. Who saw Brushy shoot with both hands? Who saw him shoot at all? And besides, the guy could have been a crack shot, and that still would not prove he was Billy the Kid, okay? I know people who can shoot the eye out of a damn crow at 100 yards. That don't mean they're Carlos Hathcock. The scars, however, that would be very compelling. But for the upteenth time, there's just no proof of them existing. I can't will the scars to exist, and neither can you. They either existed or they didn't, and we have no proof of them existing. Woo! Speaking of compelling evidence, next up is one of my favorites. A lot of people love to hang their hat on this idea that Brushy Bill Roberts knew things that nobody else possibly could have known unless they were Billy the Kid, or at very least a participant in the Lincoln County War. One such detail that always gets brought up is the fact that Brushy knew that there were black soldiers present during the Battle of Lincoln back in 1878. I even had one guy uh, comment that not even historians knew about this until 1970. So obviously, if Brushy knew about these black troops in 1950, he was telling the truth, right? Well, hold on just a second. First off, I can tell you with absolute confidence that both historians and common folk alike knew that there were black soldiers present at the Battle of Lincoln prior to both 1970 and 1950. How do I know this? Well, I have in my possession... Right now, I'm looking at it. It's literally six inches from my hand. It's a book titled The Saga of Billy the Kid, originally published in 1926. Now, the copy I have isn't that old. It was already on its fourth edition when mine was printed in 1946. The Saga of Billy the Kid is a nonfiction biography written by Walter Noble Burns that, well, basically just covers the life of Billy the Kid. And it's in this book, chapter 10, page 101 in my copy, where Burns writes, quote, Two squadrons of Negro cavalry, with two Gatlin guns and Colonel Dudley in command, were soon moving at double quick on the road to Lincoln. End quote. Like I said, the book was published in 1926, over 20 years before Brushy started making his bold claims. But Josh, do you really expect us to believe that Brushy Bill scoured obscure books and somehow memorized them? Okay, I get what you're saying. But this book wasn't that obscure. As I just mentioned, my copy from 1946 is like the fourth edition. This book had a huge circulation, even made bigger by the fact that it was serialized and printed in local newspapers all over the country, including the paper in Heiko, Texas, where Brushy lived. Oh, okay, now we're getting somewhere. By the way, Mr. Burns' autobiography on Billy the Kid was not perfect. There were things he got wrong as well, little things. Like saying that the time of the day that Bob Ollinger led the prisoners to get food. Walter Noble Burns writes that it occurred at noon. Likewise, Brushy Bill claimed that it happened at noon as well. Truth is, we now know that it was much later in the evening, around 5 p.m. 
Weird though, huh? You know, Brushy and Mr. Burns getting the same minute, seemingly unimportant detail wrong. It's almost like, oh, I don't know, maybe Brushy read the book. Maybe several times. Maybe he even consulted it as he wrote his many notes or letters to William Morrison. As far as Brushy knowing other details, uh, the ones I see cited often is that he knew the layout of the McSween house or the courthouse, some building there in Lincoln. Honestly, I don't remember which one. But here's the thing. Once again, says who? I mean, are there other descriptions of this building other than the one that Brushy provided? How do we even know that his descriptions were accurate? Do we have anything to compare them to? Josh at WildWestExtra.com. Email me, please, if you happen to know. I'm genuinely curious. I've had more than a handful of people email me talking about a video on YouTube titled Santa Rosa, New Mexico Supplemental Part 2, saying that I have to watch it, and it's absolute proof that Brushy Bill was really Billy the Kid. Okay, I did watch it twice. It's an interview with an older gentleman named John Martinez who claims his grandmother had a child by Billy the Kid and that everybody back in the day knew that Garrett did not kill the kid. All right, cool. This is no disrespect to Mr. Martinez, but that means absolutely nothing to me. I'm sure he's a very nice man. Okay, I'm sure his grandmother was a very lovely lady, but stuff like this is not evidence to me. There's nothing there at all that proves one way or the other about Brushy Bill Roberts. You take it back. My grandma told me Billy the Kid was a good boy and Pat Garrett was a mean, bad man. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. He was. Billy was the best boy. All I'm saying is that Brushy wasn't Billy. Billy was a good boy. My grandma said so. She was nice. I know she was. I know. And I know Billy was nice, too. It's a cool story, I promise you. It's all very interesting. But remember, this is not an episode on whether or not Billy the Kid died in 1881. Nor is it an episode about the integrity of Pat Garrett. I'm simply coming to you with the statement that Brushy Bill Roberts was not Billy the Kid. That's all. I don't care about what your great-great-grandma had to say. I'm sure your meemaw was wonderful, but her stories about Billy the Kid have no bearing on this topic whatsoever. I mean, am I wrong here? Uh, link to the interview in the show notes. You watch it for yourself and you decide. Maybe it'll blow your mind. What it all comes down to, if you step away from your bias and allow yourself to be completely honest, you'll have to admit that there's little to no evidence proving Brushy Bill's claims. Anecdotal stories, 70-year-old memories, unprovable claims, other pieces of quote-unquote proof that are patently false, like the idea that only Brushy would have known about the black soldiers or the misrepresented findings of the photo comparison study. Now, I recently listened to an excellent interview of author Brett L. Hall on the Blood and Dust podcast. All you old West history buffs out there don't sleep on Blood and Dust. They cover a lot of the same topics that we do here, as well as conducting really great interviews. Check them out. Link in the show notes. Now, Brett Hall, if you're not familiar, he wrote the book The Real Billy the Kid, a.k.a. Brushy Bill Roberts. And in addition to being an author, Brett also is an archivist and former member of the board of directors for the Billy the Kid Museum in Canton, Texas. And I will leave a link for his book in the show notes. These show notes are going to take me in a fucking hour to compile. And yes, I have read the book, thanks to all of you who recommended it to me. Now, a good portion of Brett's appearance there on Blood and Dust was spent going over the various issues with Pat Garrett. You know, how he could have possibly killed the wrong man, and then they start going over William V. Morrison's bona fides. Now, he wasn't looking for money and paid for all of Brushy's legal bills himself, how he converted so many of the old documents into microfilm out of his own pocket, 
how he corresponded with the jizz historians, etc. They also discuss evidence backing Brushy's life story post-1881 and the DNA issue, which I'll also get to. But during the interview, Mr. Hall said very confidently, quote, there's no evidence against Brushy Bill that passes scrutiny. Uh, Mr. Hall, on the off chance that you're listening, I respectfully and strongly disagree. Not only is there a lack of evidence, as I've just shown, to back up the claims of Brushy Bill, there is a ton of evidence against the man. Hard proof via the federal census and other official documents, not to mention Brushy's own family members, that Roberts was still in diapers when the Lincoln County War was raging. We know where the man lived for his entire life, and spoiler alert, it weren't New Mexico. I mean, just who was Brushy Bill Roberts, really? When he died, he was living under the name Ollie L. Roberts. That's the name on his death certificate, and that's the name on his gravestone, his original gravestone. Now, if only there was a way to possibly track the name Ollie L. Roberts with additional information that Brushy gave us, like the names of his previous wives and the places they lived and what years they lived in these places. All I can say is thank God for genealogy. I don't know if you ever dabbled in it, but if you've got a relative who spent a significant amount of time alive between, oh, say, 1850 and 1940, you're in for a treat because there's a ton of records available. The census records in particular have all kinds of information. Then you've got marriage records, deeds, draft records, death certificates. And old Brushy Bill had all of this stuff. Matter of fact, the man's entire life is well documented. Obviously, Brushy is just a nickname. As I mentioned, the name he was living under at the time of his death was Ollie L. Ollie being short for Oliver. However, according to Brushy, his actual real name was William Henry Roberts, born in Buffalo Gap, Texas, on December 31st, 1859, the last hour of the last day of the year. Only problem is there's no record of a William Henry Roberts being born in Buffalo Gap or thereabouts in 1859. Nor is there any record of a William Henry Roberts living in the areas or doing any of the things that Brushy claimed. Now, Brushy, in addition to providing a fake name, William Henry Roberts, also provided fake parents to round out his legend. We'll get to his fake family soon enough. For now, though, let's just take a look at the identity of Ollie L. Roberts. Bear with me here, please. This could get confusing, but we're going to follow the paper trail and work our way backwards, okay? If you visit Brushy's gravesite at Hamilton, Texas, right now, you'll see a big headstone reading William Henry Roberts, a.k.a. Billy the Kid, born 31 December 1859, died 27 December 1950. That's not the original marker, though. No, the marker placed at the time of his death read Ollie L. Roberts, Brushy Bill, 1231-68-1227-50. And Brushy had a death certificate. Okay, it's available online if you would like to see it with your own two eyes. It lists the informant as his wife at the time of his death, Melinda E. Roberts. And it lines up with that original headstone. His name on the death certificate is Ollie L. Roberts, born in Taylor County, Texas, December 31st, 1868. Father and mother's name listed as unknown. Now, if Brushy was indeed born in 1868, as his death certificate and original grave marker state, he could not have been Billy the Kid. He would have been far too young. I think we can all agree on that, right? Both Brushy Bill believers and deniers all agree that this 1868 date of birth is bogus. I mean, his wife was given the information and she simply just gave the wrong information, right? The two had only been married for like six years at the time of Brushy's death. 
Still, though, they were married. And this is where we begin to work backwards. The lovebirds got hitched in Hamilton County, Texas. And this is the county where Heiko is located, the town where Brushy lived at the time of his death. Okay, everything looking good so far, right? Nobody could possibly contest what I've just said. Now, this was Bill's fourth and final wife. His previous bride, Lutitia, had died in June of 1944 in Van Zant County, where they were then living. And you're about to hear quite a bit about Van Zant County. On the 1940 census, you can see Brushy and Lutitia living in Gregg County, Texas. Uh, Gregg County, by the way, neighbors Hamilton County, where Brushy and Lutitia were married. Both counties are over there in East Texas. The 1940 census is interesting because it lists Brushy as Ollie Roberts, born in 1870. Not too far off from the 1868 date listed on his death certificate and original grave marker. So it's likely Melinda didn't just make up the idea that Brushy was born in 1868. Looks like he was also given a fictional year of birth when he was married to Lutitia as well. Continuing to work our way backwards, looking at official documents, Brushy and Lutitia are still living in Gregg County, Texas, the town of Gladewater, to be exact, in 1935. In 1930, however, the couple is living in neighboring Van Zant County, Texas, where they had gotten married the previous year in 1929. And that census, the 1931, lists Oliver with a birth year of 1878. Oh my goodness. So far, we've worked our way back 20 years through official documents, and although dates do differ, none of them back up the claim that Brushy, a.k.a. Ollie, could have been Billy the Kid. From 1868 to 1870, and now 1878, all of these birth years would have made Brushy a mere child when Billy the Kid was an active outlaw. Don't worry, we will discuss census discrepancies in a moment. But first, let's see what the other records divulge as we work further back into the life of Brushy Bill. Like I said, he and Lutitia were married in 1929 in Van Zant County. Sadly, just a few years earlier, in 1924, both of Brushy's parents would pass away, right there once again in Van Zant County. Continuing our backwards journey, the 1920 census for Van Zant County. Brushy is widowed, living as a boarder in the home of James Murph and his wife, Allie. Allie, by the way, was the daughter of Brushy's last wife we mentioned, Lutitia. Now, in this 1920 census, Brushy is listed as Oliver P., not L., the P standing for Pleasant, with a birth year of 1879. And he's listed as a widow because his wife Molly died the previous year in 1919 in Arkansas. The pair had gotten married in Van Zant County way back in 1912 and at some point moved to Arkansas. They were living in Little River County, Arkansas, when Molly passed away in 1919, and it's there in Little River County where Brushy Bill registered for the World War I draft. And you betcha that record is online as well, with his name listed as Oliver Pleasant Roberts, born on August 26, 1878. Hold on, hold on, hold on. What the hell are you talking about, Josh? You fool. How do you know Ollie L is the same person as this Oliver Pleasant guy? I mean, none of these birth years even match up. How do we know you're not just using some podcast wizardry to loosely tie a bunch of random people together? It's the wives, bro. I'm not just saying Brushy Bill was married to these women for shits and giggles. Brushy himself admitted that he was married to these ladies, Lutitia and Molly, naming them by name and even admitting to living in the areas I just mentioned. Alias Billy the Kid, Chapter 8, quote, In 1912, I met Molly Brown, and we were married. He goes on to say, quote, Later on, I had a ranch in Arkansas, near Oklahoma. And, quote, Little River County, Arkansas, where I just mentioned them living, is right on the border with Oklahoma. Further on, quote, I went to Gladewater, end quote. Quote, Molly died in 1919. 
I married Letitia Ballard in 1925, with whom I lived until her death in 1944. Then I married Melinda Allison in November 1944. In quote. Remember, these are Brushy's own words, not my imagination. And it's his own words that back up what the official records show, that Ollie L., a.k.a. Ollie Pleasant Roberts, was married to Letitia, Molly, and Melinda, that they lived in Gladewater, in Arkansas. This is all provable, and it's all public record. And we also see a pattern begin to emerge. In 1930, his birth year is listed as 1878. In 1920, it's listed as 1879. In 1918, for the draft, he listed it again as 1878. Now, his gravestone, the death certificate, and the 1940 census records are different. But from 1930 all the way down to the World War I draft in 1918, you've got a 1878-1879 year of birth. That's interesting for a couple of reasons. One, obviously, once again, it means he would have been too young to be Billy the Kid. But two... If he was born in 1878, he would have been around 40 years of age in 1918. This is important as he registered for the draft on December 12th of that year. Now, there were three separate registrations for the draft there in World War I. The first was held on June 5th, 1917, and was for all men between the ages of 21 and 31. The second, held on June 5th, 1918, was for those who attained the age of 21 after that first registration. The third, held for men between the ages of 18 and 45, was held on, ding, 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 September 12th, 1918. What this means is that Brushy was not obligated by law to register for the draft the first two go-arounds, as he was older than 31. But that third one, he was 40, so he was under 45 years of age, therefore legally he had to register. If he was born in 1859, as he claimed, then in 1918 he would have been 58, 59 years old. Therefore, he would not have had to register for the draft. Likewise, if he was born in 1868, as his death certificate claimed, he wouldn't have to have registered then either. Same goes if he was born in 1870, as was claimed on the 1940 census. You see what I'm saying here? Josh, you ignorant slut. He was purposely given false information on the census records. He was Billy the damn kid. He was putting out misinformation to throw the law off his trail. Yeah, okay, I get that. But still. I'm 40 years old right now, and I know a lot of dudes who are in their late 50s. As prematurely aged as I may be, we still don't get confused as being the same age. Even on my roughest of days, I don't look like I'm in my late 50s, and I've never met anyone who was 58 who could pass as 40, not even an Asian. You're telling me that a 58-year-old brushy Bill went and registered for the draft pretending to be 40 so he wouldn't get arrested? But Josh, he looked really young for his age. Even when he was 90, he only looked 70. Ah, is that right? Maybe that's because he was really fucking 70. Y'all get me all worked up now. Whew. Okay, now, before registering for the draft, Brushy is on record both buying and selling land uh, in Sevier County, Arkansas, also on the Oklahoma border, in 1918. And as I previously touched on, uh, by his own admission, He married Miss Molly Brown in Van Zant County, Texas, again, back in 1912. The only wife he does not mention is the first one, Anna. Records show that they were married back in Van Zant County in July of 1909. The same Van Zant County where Brushy was living in 1920. The same Van Zant where he and Molly were married in 1912. And the same Van Zant County where his parents also lived. Now, Brushy and Anna can be found living together on the 1910 census in Van Zant County in May of that year. 
That census, by the way, lists Brushy's birth year as 1880, very consistent with the last several we've seen, right? There's a two-year discrepancy, 1878 to 1880. And his name on the census is Oliver P. Roberts. Unfortunately, this was a short-lived marriage that would end a divorce in November of 1910. They were together less than two years. I don't know what happened, but obviously Brushy did not care to bring her name up. Moving further backwards, we have a 20-year-old Oliver P. Roberts living with his parents on the 1900 census for Hopkins County, just north of Van Zandt County. This is all very consistent as Brushy's father, Henry O. Roberts, would be found also living in Van Zandt County in both the 1910 and 1920 censuses. We do absolutely know who Brushy's parents were, and spoiler alert, it ain't the parents he claimed in Alias Billy the Kid, no matter what any fake family trees you may find online might say. And of course, finally, there's the 1880 census for Bates County, Arkansas, listing a one-year-old Oliver. Yes, Brushy Bill, a.k.a. Oliver Pleasant Roberts, was born in Arkansas. Same mother, same father as the Ollie P. Roberts in Hopkins County in 1910. Same mother and father living in nearby Van Zandt County even later. This is the same person you can track literally from the age of one all the way to his death. The paper trail is clear and consistent. It's not until he hits around 50 years of age, you know, once both his parents were dead and he married Lutitia, that he starts changing his tune. First saying that he was born in 1870 and then 1868 and then finally to Morrison, 1859. That was when he was in full-blown I'm Billy the Kid mode. And at some point along the way, he dropped the middle name Pleasant, replacing it with the letter L. When and why, I can't say for sure. So as you can see, Brushy really lived an average, unremarkable life. He was a farmer, born into a farming family, and spent the vast majority of his years in East Texas. There's absolutely nothing on his paper trail that indicates he did any sort of Wild West shit or that he was even old enough to participate in those wild old days. But Josh, you're just citing census records and we all know how inaccurate they are. Hell, even the dates on Brushy Bill's own census records that you're claiming aren't lining up. Yeah, you got me there. But before we go damning census records to an eternity in hell, indulge me for a moment. Allow me to share my own great-great-great-grandfather as an example. He, we'll call him Gramps, was born in Texas in 1848, about a decade before the historical Billy the Kid would have been born. Now, Gramps is listed on the 1850 census as being one years old. In 1860, he's listed as being 11 years old. Skip ahead 10 years, and in 1870, the census lists him as being 21. So far, so good, right? You can probably guess what he's listed as on the 1880 census. 31, that's right. The next big census is in the year 1900, 20 years later. He should be listed as being 51, but alas, he's not. He's listed as being 59 years old. And they've even got the state where he was born wrong as well. In 1910, things are correct again, though. He's listed as being 61 years of age, and he died in 1918 at the age of 69. Nice. Pretty simple exercise you yourself can try. It's extremely easy if you or someone you know have a subscription to Ancestry.com. You could probably get a free trial, or if you don't know anybody, you can find you a library with a genealogy department, and they'll have a free account that you can use right there. Punch in your info on a family member. They lived roughly around the same period. Someone born preferably between 1840 and 1860. You can, hopefully, find all their census records, and you're sure to find at least one mistake, if not more. In my case, for this one particular person, it was just that one year, 1900. They've got his age off by a whopping eight years. I mean, what happened? 
Was it a grand conspiracy? Was Gramps purposely spreading misinformation because he was secretly Jesse James? Or was it more likely that he wasn't home that day and one of his dumbass kids gave out the wrong information? Or the census taker was just hung over? I'll let you decide. All those census records from Gramps from 1850 to 1910, you can still get a pretty good idea of his rough age, despite small errors. Sure, census records are not perfect. You'll often find mistakes. But you take several different records spanning decades, as we have just done with Brushy Bill, you put all the information together, and you get a pretty good overall idea of somebody's life, where they lived, when they were born, all that good stuff. You might be able to say that Brushy was lying about his age on purpose at some point so as to throw the law off his trail, but was he lying on the 1880 census when he said he was one years old? I mean, obviously his parents gave that information. Was he lying on the 1900 census when he's listed as 20 years old? You know, Billy the Kid would have been somewhere around 40, 41 years old in 1900. Was a 40-year-old Brushy passing himself off as a 20-year-old kid? It's my opinion that these records prove beyond a reasonable doubt that Brushy was not Billy the Kid as he couldn't have been old enough. However, Brushy Bill's most ardent defenders have an explanation. Of course they do. You see, that wasn't really Brushy there on the 1880 census. No, it seems that Brushy stumbled upon the body of his dead cousin, Ollie P. Roberts, in Oklahoma at some undetermined time, and just sort of slipped into the dead man's identity. Alias Billy the Kid, Chapter 9, describes the dead man as, quote, a cousin who was born in 1867, ran away from home in about 1884, and was killed in Indian Territory. End quote. A few sentences later, quote, he took over his cousin's belongings, intending to bring them home to the boy's family. He probably hung on to them, however, for when he finally located the survivors at Sulphur Springs, Texas, they took him for the runaway boy, and he let them think he was. End quote. Now, there's no a year attributed to this discovery. We'll get to Brushy Bill's unbelievable resume in a moment, but this is one of the many times he claimed to be working as a member of the Anti-Horse Thief Association. The Sulphur Springs clue is interesting, though. Sulphur Springs, Texas is located in Hopkins County. We know Ollie Roberts' parents were living in Hopkins County per the 1900 census. However, by 1910, they're up in Van Zandt County, and then in 1920, they're up in Arkansas, and finally back in Van Zandt County before their deaths in 1924. One could assume this dead cousin was found sometime around the turn of the century, or at least before 1910. Daniel A. Edwards, in his book Billy the Kid and Autobiography, theorizes that this happened sometime around 1910. Okay, fine, let's just go with 1910. First off, Brushy said that his cousin Ollie was born in 1867 and ran away from home in 1884. Well, we know this is not true because historical records show that Oliver Roberts was, without a doubt, born sometime between 1878 or 1880. This much is admitted to in a roundabout way in Daniel Edwards' book that I just mentioned, Billy the Kid in Autobiography. In Chapter 8, Edwards writes, quote, This was the real Ollie Roberts, a cousin who was born in 1879, ran away from home, and was killed in Indian Territory around 1910 in a difficulty about stolen horses. End quote. Notice how even Edwards says that this Ollie was born in 1879 as opposed to 1867, as Brushy claimed. Okay, fair enough. Let's pretend that when Brushy said 1867, it was just an honest mistake that he simply misspoke. That this Ollie Roberts was indeed born in 1879, as the records show, and that he ran away from home and was killed around 1910. This would have made him around 30 years old at the time of his death. 
Brushy, however, claiming to be born in 1859, would have been at least 50 years of age in 1910. Not only did the dead boy's mother confuse someone else as her son, which, okay, if you really wanted to stretch it, we could just talk that up to her grief. But you're telling me she mistook a 50-year-old man as her son? Oliver Roberts' mother was Sarah Elizabeth, maiden name Ferguson Roberts, born in 1856, which would have made her just three years older than Brushy, if Brushy's claims are to be believed. So a 53-year-old woman confuses a 50-year-old man as her long-lost son? What about the rest of the family? Once again, Billy the Kid in Autobiography, Chapter 8, quote, This was a time when the younger generation did not speak out of turn to elders. And apparently the family chose to humor the matriarch in her decision to accept Brushy as her now fully grown boy rather than to make a fuss about it. End quote. Come on, man. Sarah wasn't no widow woman. Oliver's father was alive and well in 1910. Are you telling me he just kind of went with it too? He was totally okay with some 50-year-old just pretending to be his prodigal son? Now, if I was the type of guy to use bad language, I'd be inclined to say that what I just recounted sounds a lot like bullshit. But since this is a family-friendly show, I won't. That's it, though. That's the thinnest of threads that the entire Brushy Bill story hangs by. That a William Henry Roberts, of whom there is no historical evidence, discovered his dead runaway cousin, Oliver Roberts, 20 years his junior, and convinced the dead boy's mother that he, a 50-year-old man, was her long-lost son. And the rest of the family just kind of said, oh, okay, you know, we got to respect our elders. Nobody tell mama. There was never a funeral for this poor runaway, Oliver Roberts, nor is there any evidence or even passed down stories about a son who went missing for years. All we have is the word of brushy Bill Roberts. Okay, cool story, but I think at this point we need to take a serious look at Brushy's credibility. After all, if we could somehow show that Brushy was of the utmost character, or even just a generally all-around honest type of guy, I think it would help his case out a bit, right? We'd have an easier job believing these very hard-to-swallow tales. Might make us a little more inclined to take his word for certain things that we have no concrete proof for, such as the scars or this bizarre dead cousin claim. On the other hand, if Brushy were a proven liar or a gross exaggerator, then it would be easy to dismiss these stories as being just that the ramblings of an over-imaginative old man. Well, let's hear from Brushy Bill Roberts himself once again. Remember, you too can read Brushy's story in the book that Morrison released a few years after his death, alias Billy the Kid. You can find this book on Amazon, Audible. You can even read it for free online. And in the book, Brushy describes his life after escaping the clutches of Pat Garrett in 1881, the various events that led him back to Texas and settling down and living that married life. This particular part was all covered on my original Brushy Bill episode, so I won't go that much into detail. Here's just a quick overview, according to Brushy himself. He escaped Pat Garrett in 1881 and fled to Old Mexico, where he lived with the Yaqui tribe for a while. Eventually came back to Texas, where he was going by the name of the Texas Kid. Drifted on up into Deadwood, South Dakota, where he found work as a scout and a guard for the stages. This is where he originally took on the nickname Brushy. After a brief stay in Idaho, where he joined the Baptist Church, he headed on down to Nebraska and began working for none other than Buffalo Bill Cody. Ranch work, breaking horses. Very soon thereafter, the Texas Kid, a.k.a. Brushy Bill, took on a new alias, the Hugo Kid, and he joined up with the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Then he joined the Anti-Horse Thief Association. And then he became a U.S. Deputy Marshal for hanging Judge Parker, catching bad guys in Indian Territory. 
By the way, he also claimed that Judge Parker knew that he was Billy the Kid, of course. Another, by the way, all these jobs I'm mentioning, these were all over like the span of just a few years. Pinkerton detective, living with the Native Americans, deputy U.S. marshal, horse thief association, ranch hand, stagecoach guard, scout. All these totally badass jobs in just like seven years. Next up, he entered into the rodeo up in Cheyenne, Wyoming, and of course he won. Nobody could bust a bronc quite like Brushy Bill. After that, he moved east to Cincinnati and became a professional boxer. I shit you not. For about the hundredth time, I promise you, this is his imagination talking here, not mine. After a brief career as a pugilist, Brushy returned both to the Anti-Horse Thief Association as well as the Deputy Marshal Service before touring the rodeo circuit professionally. He was so good with horses that he was actually sent down to South America as well as Europe to both catch and break wild horses. Dude was international at this point. Once back home in the motherland, this would now put us in the 1890s, Brushy again went back to work for the Anti-Horse Thief Association and the Marshal Service, as well as touring and performing for Buffalo Bill's Wild West Show, before moving down to Old Mexico and establishing a ranch. His ranching would be put on hold in 1898, however, when the Spanish-American War broke out, and Brushy joined up with Teddy Roosevelt's Rough Riders and fought in Cuba. He beat up a bunch of cocky officers and ended up getting what he called a bobtail discharge. That's the old-timey slang for a dishonorable discharge. He claimed that an officer was murdered and he, along with some others, were blamed for it. They couldn't prove it, so they just kind of kicked his ass out. By the way, real quick, let's stay on the topic of the Spanish-American War for a moment. I think this is a very good example of how Brushy Bill proponents will do mental gymnastics in order to attempt to lend credence to his claims. Take Mr. Edwards, for example, in his book, Billy the Kid and Autobiography. I promise I'm not picking on Mr. Edwards. Uh, his book is very detailed, however, and many people point to it as having a ton of proof backing Brushy. That's why you're going to hear me quote it quite a bit on this episode. Well, in the book, Edwards does find a military record of a William H. Roberts serving in Cuba during the Spanish-American War. Okay, remember, Brushy claimed William Henry Roberts was his real name. And here we have a record for a William H. Roberts. It's got to be him. Only problem is this William H. Roberts is enlisted as a private with the 10th Cavalry. And if you'll remember, the 10th Cav were Buffalo soldiers. And at this point in time, they were still an all-black regiment. I find it hard to believe that a very white, brushy Bill was serving with him. Also, same book, Chapter 11, Edwards finds a photo of a man from Teddy Roosevelt's 1899 book, The Rough Riders. Now, this particular photo is titled Five Bronco Busters, and one of the unnamed men, according to Daniel Edwards, has an uncanny resemblance to Brushy Bill. Furthermore, the man is standing with his head slightly cocked, just like Billy the Kid is standing in that famous photo. And he's wearing a pinky ring, just like Billy the Kid. Look, I'm not going to put words into Mr. Edwards' mouth. I think if you'll ask him, he'll probably be the first to admit that he's simply putting forth theories. That he can't prove that this unnamed man was Brushy Bill Roberts, he's just asking questions. But isn't that how all conspiracy theories go? You know, you're hit with all this information at once. None of it provable, just an overload of coincidental musings. And your mind just starts trying not to get confused while at the same time connecting the dots. You start thinking, man, you know, what are the chances? When in reality, none of it adds up to anything. Don't get me wrong. I love a good conspiracy theory. I personally don't believe things happened on 9-11 quite like they want us to believe. Okay. I think there's a damn good chance the CIA and the mafia killed JFK. I don't believe that you know what virus came from eating pangolas. 
And I damn sure don't think that Jeffrey Epstein killed himself. Some conspiracies are true. We know this. Operation Northwoods. Gulf of Tonkin incident. But not everything is a conspiracy. All right. Sorry, I'm getting way off topic now, but you get what I'm saying, right? You're going to have to find more evidence than just, hey, I found a picture of a guy that looks like another guy who I think looks like Billy the Kid. Let's get back to Brushy's story. Following his discharge from the army, he went back to Mexico just in time for the Mexican government to seize his ranch. Brushy fought back, killing about a dozen soldados while fighting his way through a thousand reinforcements, escaping to Texas with them fast on his trail. Once again, alias Billy the Kid. Okay, I'm not making up that thousand number of reinforcements as an exaggeration. That's the number that the totally honest and never full of shit Brushy Bill said he fought his way through. Once back in the U.S., Brushy started his own Wild West show and toured all over the country. Following that, he went into the livestock business, buying and selling stock. And then in 1907, he went back to Mexico where he attempted to start another ranch, conveniently just in time for the Mexican Revolution. And you already know what happens next, right? He joins up with Pancho Villa. And then finally, in the year 1914, at the age of around 55 years old, Brushy moved back to Texas, got married, and finally settled down. Now, I know what you're thinking. What an amazing life, right? Well, this was post-Billy the Kid. I didn't even get into his pre-Billy the Kid antics. Oh, yes, it seems that Brushy had one hell of an exciting childhood as well. Now, this I never did touch on in my original episode, so I will share it now. By Brushy Bill's own admission, he ran away from home in May of 1874, so around the alleged age of 14, joined up with a cattle drive, and ended up being taken captive by outlaws who were led by the bandit queen herself, Belle Starr. He ended up living with her for a bit, even served as a lookout at Belle's super-secret hideout, and said it was she who originally took to calling him the Texas Kid. Finally, they allowed him to drift off and join another group of bandits, some cattle rustlers. He rode with them a bit before heading to Dodge City, Kansas, where Brushy then fell in with a bunch headed for the Black Hills. Somewhere along the line, he met up with this guy named Mountain Bill. Now, Mountain Bill noticed how good young Brushy was with the horses, and the pair ended up traveling all over the West, breaking the wildest of horses. Brushy said they would go from ranch to ranch, basically saying, give us your toughest Bronx, I'll break them. Now, that's a theme throughout Brushy Bill's claims. He was a big fan of the horses. No matter what Forrest Gump-like adventure he might be fabricating, he always found a way to insert his superb horsemanship. Even the lie about being in the Spanish-American War where he claimed he was put in charge of the horses. All right, back to the story. He and Mountain Bill traveled all over, okay? Arizona, Montana, Oregon, Wyoming, Nebraska. For a couple of months, Mountain Bill even placed Brushy in the care of the Cheyenne and Arapaho. He lived with them, learned how to ride horses the Indian way. Finally, he and Mountain Bill drifted back to Arizona, where they parted ways. This was in April of 1877, shortly before Brushy went on to New Mexico and hooked up with Jesse Evans and his gang. Now, you do the math here. Three short years, while he was still a teenager, Brushy was an outlaw twice over, a cowboy. He traveled from Arizona to Montana to Dodge to Oregon to the damn Black Hills. He lived with the Cheyenne and the Arapaho, and he worked for Bell Star. And then... He went on to become the most famous outlaw that ever lived. Look, man, you don't have to admit it to me or anyone else, but at least be honest with yourself. You and I both know that Brushy Bill didn't even do half of the shit I just listed off. You know it does not have the ring of truth. Could it be possible? Sure. I mean, there was nothing in there about bending the laws of physics or space-time continuums. So I guess it's all in the realm of physical possibility. But possibility does not equal plausibility. 
Do yourself a favor and read a few biographies of real historical figures who lived during the real Wild West. Okay, read about guys like Jim Bridger and Kit Carson and John Coulter, Bat Masterson, John Wesley Harden. These guys lived exciting, dangerous lives. Lives full of adventure and hardship. And not all of them combined did half the shit that Brushy Bill claimed. His story does not even approach being believable. Now, if you're shouting at whatever device you're using to listen to this right now, saying that it is totally believable and Brushy went on all these fantastical adventures, well, I can't help you. God bless. There's a good chance you're also a huge fan of Alex Jones and you think that every school shooting is a false flag psyop conducted by the deep state lizard Illuminati in order to plunge us into a new world order. You're the type of person to whom reality is merely a suggestion. And to be honest, I'm a little jealous. It has to be fun living inside your head. Real life is boring. I'll be the first to admit it. Your mind, however, is a wonderland of excitement and possibilities. But if you're still listening and not totally outraged by this point, I urge you to stick around because we ain't done yet with the subject of Brushy's credibility. You see, Brushy Bill wasn't the only fake outlaw who ever lived. Oh, no. Matter of fact, he was close friends with two other frauds, J. Frank Dalton, who claimed to be Jesse James, and William Uncle Kit Carson, another colorful Wild West stealer of valor. Now, J. Frank initially himself claimed to be Billy the Kid, and then he said he was U.S. Marshal Frank Dalton before he finally sank into his final form as the legendary Jesse James. And both he and Roberts have been pictured together more than once. Brushy actually had somebody fly him out to New York City to meet with Jay Frank, and he attended Frank's 100th birthday bash in Missouri. And as early as 1943, both Brushy and Jay Frank were photographed together as quote-unquote gunslingers in Longview, Texas. I find that to be extremely telling, as the whole narrative around Brushy Bill was that he was so hesitant to finally come out and admit that he was Billy the Kid. You know, that William Morrison basically had to drag it out of him. When, in fact, he was going around parading in some sort of relic from the Old West before he and Morrison ever even met. Now, in the case of Jay Frank, we know for a fact he was not Jesse James because, other than his story being just as full of holes as brushies, there was an actual DNA test done. Now, that does not stop believers from doing what they do best, though. Yes, there are conspiracy theories around Jay Frank's DNA test. I'll let you do your own research and come to your own conclusions, but it's recognized as fact by every legitimate historian that J. Frank Dalton certainly was not Jesse James. So if that's the case, then why did Brushy say he was? And this is all with the belief that the historical Billy the Kid would even know who the historical Jesse James was in person. I mean, there were rumors that the two men actually met in Las Vegas, New Mexico, and there were rumors that the James gang had some sort of counterfeit money operation going around. Lincoln or Fort Sumner or somewhere around there, but it's never actually been conclusively proven that Billy and Jesse knew each other. Also, never forget, Brushy did also claim to be a member of the James gang at one point as well, just one of his many lives. And the other guy I mentioned, this Uncle Kit Carson, uh, don't get him confused with the actual Kit Carson, although he did claim to be the actual Kit Carson for years, despite being far too young. When that didn't pan out, he made up lies about being a survivor of Comanche massacres or having been an army scout. And just like Brushy, Uncle Kit even claimed to have fought in Cuba with the Rough Riders. We do know Brushy and Uncle Kit were close, and that Brushy lovingly referred to Kit as Dad several times in written correspondences, even before his meeting with Morrison and quote-unquote coming out as Billy the Kid. One has to wonder if Uncle Kit was his surrogate father when it comes to being a faker. I got to admit, the whole dad thing is kind of creepy. I mean, what do you want me to say here? 
Birds of a feather flock together. Three men, all friends, all claiming to be people who they weren't and all backing up each other's claims. But why? You know, what possible motivation could Brushy Bill have to concoct all these lies? There's no way to know for sure, obviously, but I love the MICE acronym for sniffing out possible motivations. MICE, M-I-C-E, money, ideology, coercion, and ego. We can strike out ideology and coercion, okay? Brushy was no fanatic, nor was he persuading anybody to do anything via force of threats. That leaves us with money and ego as likely motivations. We know that Brushy was flat-ass broke in 1950, supposedly just living in a little shack there in Heiko. And we also know that sometimes when people lie, especially when they lie about being an American hero, they're often given a great many things. Free trips, attention, money, gifts. What if Brushy had lived long enough to see that book written, Alias Billy the Kid? He'd have gotten a cut of that as well. Furthermore, if you remember earlier, I made the observation that Brushy began first lying about his age when he was in his 50s. Or about the same time that the Social Security bill was signed into law. Roy L. Halls, in his book, Brushy Bill, proposes that Brushy began altering his age, making himself seem older than he was, in order to qualify for these benefits. Full disclosure, I don't believe there have ever been any records discovered that Brushy, a.k.a. Oliver Roberts, ever filed for Social Security. Matter of fact, Brett Hall, author of the book, The Real Billy the Kid, says that he contacted Social Security to see if Brushy applied for benefits, and they said they have no records of him doing so. I have no reason to believe that Mr. Hall is lying, so I'll take his word for it. I personally think that while money probably has something to do with Brushy's motivations, I think it was mostly an ego thing. He never did anything his entire life, and I don't mean that in a mean way. Brushy, by all accounts, was a law-abiding, tax-paying citizen. There are no stories about him being a deadbeat or an abusive husband or a drunk, no run-ins with the law. He was always listed as having jobs on the census records, most of them labor-type jobs, the same type of work that I myself have always done. Brushy just sort of lived his life there in East Texas doing his thing. He wasn't hurting nobody. Likely, he did what me and you do. You know, he read these stories about Old West legends, and he found them captivating. I'm sure he saw the movies. Hell, there were like close to 50 movies made about Billy the Kid prior to 1950. I'm sure Brushy had an active imagination, probably wished he could have rode with Billy the Kid or Jesse James, and probably thought that life seemed really exciting. And somewhere along the way, he started telling stories. I mean, this certainly is not an unheard of phenomenon. You see it come in waves, right? Fake Vietnam vets, fake Navy SEALs. Oddly enough, here recently, you're starting to see a lot of fake mafia guys. Seems that everyone who ever so much as ate a calzone is now starting a YouTube channel claiming to know who killed Hoffa. Some of these people, like Sammy the Bull, are legit gangsters. Although many are just out and out lying or at very least drastically exaggerating their exploits. Why? Well, we all want to feel like we've done something in our lives. We all want to be cooler or tougher or smarter than we really are. As far as Brushy Bill is concerned, his lies got him a lot of attention. Okay? He went to New York City. He got to meet with the governor of New Mexico. He got interviewed by people that were hanging on his every word. And this is attention that I don't believe he got anywhere else. You couple that with probably a less than average IQ and rapidly slipping mental faculties, and you've got yourself a legend. Here's an interesting story from 1998 titled Brushy Bill or Billy the Kid that was found on People and Places, the Gazetteer of Hamilton County, Texas. It's written by a Mrs. Elrita Weathers, and it's her memories of seeing Brushy Bill around town when she was a little girl. Quote, 
Mother and I would do everything we could to avoid being trapped by Brushy Bill, as we all knew him. In retrospect, I would now classify his behavior as a form of dementia. We did not believe most of his claims and did not like to be the audience for his rantings and ravings. We pitied the other poor souls whom he did trap. Roberts would trap people between himself and one of the light poles around the square. Once someone was trapped, Brushy Bill would begin his tirade about being Billy the Kid. End quote. And then you have the memories of Brushy Bill's own family. Take his niece, for example, Geneva Roberts Pittman. Not only did she say that Brushy was indeed Oliver P. Roberts, but she also confirmed his birth date as being 1879, as recorded in the Family Bible. And then there's Martha Robert Heath, Brushy's half-sister. You can find her on the 1880 census, aged six years old, with that young one-year-old Oliver. Her grandson, Paul Emerson, wrote the following in 1986. Quote, I remember meeting Oliver Roberts, who was my grandmother's brother, not long before my grandmother died. She was Martha Veda Roberts Heath and was my mother's mother. Oliver came to see her in Jacksonville, Texas, and I met him. He was a dikey little man that paraded around in Western clothes and cowboy boots and said that he was Billy the Kid. To be honest, my grandmother did not believe he was Billy the Kid and did not have confidence in what he said. She thought it was the imagination of his mind. End quote. Furthermore, Paul writes in a 2014 email, quote, I do remember grandmother saying he was not Billy the Kid. End quote. Now, if you really want to take a deep dive into the issue of Brushy's family, pick up a copy of the book Brushy Bill, written by Roy L. Halls. Roy is an actual relative of Brushy Bill. His great-great-grandfather was Brushy's real daddy. And Mr. Hall makes it abundantly clear that the vast majority of the family knew that Brushy was a silly old man who made up stories. Finally, he also delves into the fake family tree that people have compiled for Brushy Bill Roberts, and he shows how it's patently false. Now, lest you consider me to be inconsistent, I will point out that none of these people I just mentioned actually knew the historical Billy the Kid nor did they claim to, kind of like the affidavit signers I spoke of at the beginning of this episode. So therefore, by default, I guess you could argue that they could not know, with all certainty, that Brushy was not Billy the Kid. However, they were family, okay? I think they'd know if their Uncle Ollie had really traveled all over doing amazing, crazy exploits. I think they'd have heard about a missing runaway boy and the cousin who replaced him. Remember, this shit didn't happen a thousand years ago. There are people alive right now who knew Brushy Bill Roberts. We ain't working with ancient Roman history here. If you're over the age of 73, then you were alive when Brushy Bill was alive. If you discount Brushy's own family, then you must also do the same with the affidavits. You can't have it both ways. Look, I don't know if Brushy Bill was crazy, if he was just a grifter or a mixture of both. And yeah, I guess there's also a chance that he was simply a confused old man and William V. Morrison put him up to all of this. At very least, Morrison would have had to have turned a blind eye to Brushy's inconsistent lies, or he himself was extremely gullible. I've gone over the census records in great detail, demonstrating how Brushy's entire life is well documented. I've explained the fantastical fairy tale life that Brushy claimed to have led, and I've shown how little he and his stories are to be trusted. Not a damn one of them can be proven. There's no proof of any of those scars. The affidavits are weak AF. Brushy had no real insider knowledge. There's no evidence his real name was William Henry Roberts, no evidence for his fake family, and no evidence for the dead cousin. There is zero proof that Brushy Bill was Billy the Kid. Hell, even just looking at pictures of Brushy Bill taken in 1950, it's completely obvious that he's not a 90-year-old man. And finally, 
Even his own family says he was not Billy the Kid. So why do so many people still believe, despite all the evidence proving otherwise? This is something I've always found fascinating, and it's one of the big reasons I wanted to revisit the topic. There's two things at play here. Something known as naive realism coupled with confirmation bias. Bear with me here. Naive realism is a psychological term describing the tendency of people to believe that they view the social world as it is, i.e. as an objective reality rather than as a subjective interpretation of that reality. Meaning that we all, you and me both, like to think that our way of thinking, our way of interpreting data, is the correct way. That our perception of the world is the correct perception. So much so that even if that reality is a false one, if anything comes along to dispute that reality, we will fall back on our bias. Hence, confirmation bias. This is where we cherry-pick any evidence that confirms our naive reality and supports what we already believe, ignoring evidence that does not support this bias or reality. Now, this is not me calling you naive or stupid or anything like that. This is the human condition I'm talking about. We all do this. We all have confirmation bias. I'm probably suffering from some serious bias on this very topic, although I'm trying not to. Much of the time it happens on a subconscious level, and we're not even aware of it. I first heard of the concept of naive realism on the Bear Grease podcast. Excellent podcast, by the way. If you enjoy the Wild West extravaganza, you will love Bear Grease. His first episode, link in the show notes, is titled The Myth of the Southern Mountain Lion. Now, hang in there with me on this. Trust me, it'll all circle back to Brushy Bill. I promise. I don't know about you, but where I'm from in Texas, you'd be hard-pressed not to find at least one redneck who doesn't claim to have seen a black panther of some sort while out in the woods. And I do use the term redneck with affection. My own father, who I trust to respect to the fullest, has his own similar encounter with a black panther. He wasn't drunk and he wasn't alone, so the damn thing of large black cat took up the entire trail in front of him, and it left huge tracks in the dirt. Now, this particular episode of Bear Grease investigates similar claims of mountain lions in Arkansas, even interviews a guy named Myra Means, who works for the Arkansas Game and Fish Commission. Mr. Means says that while there are mountain lions documented in Arkansas, Nobody's denying that, but that it's not a significant nor breeding population. Just your random young male mountain lion that'll wander in. Still, though, he gets upwards of 50 to 60 photos and videos per year sent to him, and 90-something percent of these pictures and videos are of your common, everyday house cat. Why or how are all these people mistaking a tiny, feral house cat with a 130-pound mountain lion? That's where the naive realism comes in. You got that little part of your brain that says, okay, I've heard there are mountain lions out there. They exist. Next thing you know, you go and check your trail cam and you got a picture of a cat on it. Your mind makes the leap that it's a damn cougar when, in fact, it's just Garfield. Following up with the interview with Mr. Means, host Clay Newcomb then goes on to interview a clinical psychologist where they talk about naive realism and how it fits in with confirmation bias. We've all seen weird things out in the woods. Our imagination starts working overtime. You know, you see a blur of movement in your peripheral and your mind makes the leap that it must be a damn mountain lion. Yet, you know, despite everybody I know in Southeast Texas claiming to have seen a black panther or some other type of huge black cat out in the woods, despite me hearing about them my entire life, not a damn one has been killed nor caught on a game camera. Don't get me wrong, I've seen a couple of pictures on the internet, but I don't know where they originate. Nobody I know has shown me a picture that they took with their trail cam. I'll put it to you like that. And buddy, you better believe our woods are covered 
with these cameras. Still, though, the myth persists. Now, could there be a Jaguar that came up out of Mexico and maybe worked its way up to my area? Sure, but that would not account for the thousands upon thousands of claims. Now, on my original Brushy Bill episode, I brought up Bigfoot in order to try to make this point. I got a lot of really angry comments about that, by the way. That was hands down the most controversial thing I've ever said on this podcast. But I think Bigfoot is a great example of confirmation bias. No such creature can be proven to exist. There's been nobody found, no skull, no DNA. In the year 2021, there were 39 million hunting licenses sold in the United States. 39 million. And not one person got a shot off at Sasquatch. Per car insurance claims, there are 1.5 million deer hit by vehicles per year here in the United States. You're telling me not one person nicked Harry and the Henderson's stanky ass with their station wagon. There wasn't one Bigfoot found dead out in the woods anywhere. Remember all those trail cams I just mentioned a minute ago? Not one of them snapped a picture of Bigfoot. How many people go hiking in our national forest and BLM land each and every year? People with cameras on their phones, GoPros strapped to their damn heads, and drones circling in the sky above them. Not one single reliable picture or video of Bigfoot. Not one shred of proof. Yet people are still very adamant about its existence, to the point that they'll get fighting mad if you say otherwise. Now, am I calling your Uncle Cleon a liar because he said he saw Bigfoot? No, I'm not. I think your Uncle Cleon believes he saw Bigfoot. I believe he thinks that he's telling the truth. In the same way, I believe my own father thinks that he saw a large black cat. I know my dad. He doesn't tell bullshit stories. I'm not questioning his honesty, nor am I questioning yours if you think you saw something mysterious whilst out in the wilderness. What I do question is the human mind's perception of reality when things like naive realism and confirmation bias come into play. And I'm not so sure it's that we want Brushy Bill to be Billy the Kid as much as we just want Billy the Kid to have not died at the age of 21 at the hands of a damn scoundrel. William H. Bonney, Kid Antrim, Henry McCarthy, whatever name you know him by, Billy the Kid is an American legend, a folk hero. We don't like it when our heroes die. You have to ask yourself, does your love for Billy the Kid somehow affect you from looking at the Brushy Bill story with clear eyes? Do you want Billy to have survived Pat Garrett so bad that you'll ignore any evidence to the contrary and cherry-pick what data you allow your brain to process. Because I'll be honest, I do not understand how a rational human being can look at the evidence that I presented here and still walk away believing in Brushy Bill's bullshit story. It makes no logical sense. I'm going to hit you with one more psychological theory, then we're going to call it a day. Occam's Razor, which poses that the simplest explanation is usually the correct explanation. For Brushy Bill to have been Billy the Kid, you would have to believe, at very least, that he took the identity of his dead cousin who was 20 years younger than him, that he was able to pass as a 20-something-year-old man when he was in his 40s, and that even at 90 years of age, he somehow still looked barely to be 70, despite a lifetime spent riding hard in the saddle and living in the elements. You'd have to believe that every census record from the year 1880 to 1940 was wrong. You'd have to believe that the photo comparison study was legit, despite the man who conducted the study saying otherwise. You'd have to believe that Brushy Bill's Forrest Gump-like life story about living with the Cheyenne and being a Pinkerton detective and a U.S. Marshal and a mercenary with Pancho Villa, a Buffalo soldier in Cuba, a professional boxer, a rodeo champ, having his own Wild West show. You'd have to believe all of that and none of it 
can be proven. And finally, you would have to believe that every single historian is wrong. Every one of them. Now, what's more likely? All of that or that Brushy was simply a fraud? One of the many con men who came out of the 20th century claimed to be famous figures from the Old West. That he wasn't born when he claimed and that he spent his whole boring life there in East Texas. Okay, he never served in the military and he was only 71 years of age when he died. If you want to discredit Pat Garrett, be my guest. There's a lot there to discredit. But you want to honor Billy the Kid? You're going to have to find a better candidate than Brushy Bill Roberts, who at very least was a confused old man being taken advantage of, or at most a confirmed liar and con artist. Now, I sincerely hope nobody hears this and takes any of this personally. I'm not attacking you. I'm just saying Brushy Bill was a fraud. Remember, we have more in common than you might think. You're Billy the Kid too, you know. We all are. Bunch of dirty little Billy bastards. There's a good chance. If you know where that quote comes from, you also love the Young Guns franchise as much as I do. Probably it was Young Guns that led you to Brushy Bill Roberts in the first place. So, knowing that Brushy Bill was not Billy the Kid, does that mean that I don't like Young Guns too? Absolutely not. I love that movie. I'll always love that movie. And if you're not aware, there's a very good chance we're getting a part three. As reported on multiple websites, here's a quote from Lou Diamond Phillips, who starred as Chavez. Quote, I know that Emilio has been working on it, and what's even more encouraging is that John Fusco, the creator of the first two movies, is working on it with him. There's just enough ambiguity about Chavez's death that means he might have survived just like Billy the Kid did, end quote. Now, if you don't know who John Fusco is, he's the genius behind it all. Uh, he wrote Young Guns 1 and 2. He also wrote Hildago, Marco Polo, The High Women. If you've ever seen the animated Western spirit, Stallion of Cimarron. That's John Fusco. And this dude, let me tell you, this man is living his best life. Guy lives up north somewhere like in Maine or some shit and just runs around all day in the snow with his shirt off, gallivanting around with wild critters like foxes and black bears, meditating and doing kung fu and writing kick-ass westerns. Guy's in his 60s at least, but he looks like he's 45. Guess he's got that uh, same gene that Brushy Bill Roberts has. Am I kissing John Fusco's ass right now? Bet I am. John. If you're listening, bro, put me in Young Guns 3. I'll be an extra. I'll let you shoot me. Just let me walk by in the background. Come on. Put me in Young Guns 3 and I'll lie my ass off and I'll tell everybody from now on that Brushy Bill not only was Billy the Kid, but that he was Jesse James and Butch Cassidy and fucking Hopalong Kid and the Lockdex Monster all combined. There is already an IMDB page for Young Guns 3 and it's titled Alias Billy the Kid. Perhaps as an homage to the book I keep mentioning where Brushy tells his story to Morrison. In the Young Guns world, Brushy Bill is real. If the film gets made, judging by that title, I can only assume it'll continue on with that. Maybe even show some of Brushy's post-1881 adventures. You know, the Rough Riders, the Pinkertons, all that stuff. And we know the real-life Chavez lived until 1924. And like Lou Diamond Phillips said, his death in Young Guns 2 was pretty ambiguous. I have faith in John Fusco and Emilio Estevez. I believe they can pull it off. I haven't been to the movies, to an actual movie theater, since 2015. But I'll fucking be there with bells on to watch Young Guns 3. I don't care if it's historically accurate or not, because I know it'll be entertaining. And Young Guns 1 and Young Guns 2 were such a huge part of my childhood. Probably yours too. I actually reached out to John Fusco a while back asking if he could give us any hints as far as Young Guns 3 was concerned. He replied and told me to go fuck myself. Uh, no, that's not what he said. 
He actually said that he's not permitted to speak on it, but he did say thank you for the interest and that we are not alone. So here's hoping. I know it's very hard to get a movie made these days, but I'm betting somebody as accomplished as Mr. Fusco will make it happen. All right. uh, One final thought on Brushy Bill. I do not believe this mystery will ever be officially solved, even with a DNA test. Why? Because there will always be a conspiracy aspect to it. Let's say they dug up Brushy Bill and, well, you don't know where the body of Billy the Kid is or the body of whoever Pat Garrett buried is. I mean, that was washed away years ago in a flood. Nobody knows who's under the gravestone. So let's say they dug Brushy Bill up. Well, there's supposedly hair samples of the kid at a museum in Fort Sumner. But what if they take Brushy's DNA and compare it to those hair samples and it comes back negative? Brushy Bill believers will simply say that that wasn't really the kid's hair. And on and on and on. No matter what, there will always be a nuh-uh aspect to Brushy Bill, even if there's a DNA test. Just like what happened with J. Frank Dalton. This is just one of those decided-for-yourself kind of things, okay? I'll admit, the idea is a fun one. You read Billy the Kid, an autobiography by Daniel A. Edwards. Then you read The Real Billy the Kid by Brett L. Hall. You'll find a lot of evidence that'll make you think. Likewise with the Brushy Bill discussion forums. They go deep, homeboy. As far as I'm concerned, me personally, though, the issue is settled. Brushy Bill proponents simply ask me to put faith in too many things that I find unreliable. Things that cannot be proven and are oftentimes already disproven. To believe that Brushy Bill Roberts was actually Billy the Kid requires a suspension of belief beyond my comprehension. And that's about all I've got on that. Once again, hit up the show notes. A lot of additional reading to be found on the show notes. Check out Billy the Kid in Autobiography by Daniel A. Edwards. Give his appearance on the Confessionals podcast a listen. Check out the book The Real Billy the Kid by Brett Hall. Also check out Brett's YouTube channel. Give the Blood and Dust podcast a listen. Read Brushy Bill by Roy Halls. Most of all, just have fun. If this gives you a purpose, if this is what gets your rocks off, then knock yourself out. I want to give a big shout out this episode to everyone who contributes to the cause via Buy Me a Coffee. David Allen, Barth, Bernardino, Peter, John from Canada, who was unbelievably generous and bought me a hundred coffees. If you too would like to support the Wild West extravaganza, please feel free to go to buymeacoffee.com forward slash Wild West. Please contact me at josh at wildwestextra.com and hit up my website wildwestextra.com for more true tells from the wild and woolly west. Also, if you're listening to this via YouTube, please subscribe on a podcast listening app as well. YouTube is not a permanent option for the independent creator. They can nuke this account at any moment, and I want to make sure you're still able to hear the uh, verbal diarrhea that comes out of my mouth. Nobody can nuke my RSS feed, and that is what goes out to the various podcast aggregators. Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, Overcast, CastBot, PocketCast, Stitcher, Amazon Music, iHeartRadio. How this is even available on Audible or my own podcast listening app of choice, Podcast Addict. Oh yeah, one last thing. I know I'm late on this, but for the month of April, the app Podchaser, where you can also listen to the Wild West Extravaganza, will donate 25 cents to charity for every review left on any podcast. 50 cents if the podcaster replies. Y'all know I don't ever ask for reviews, but if you want an easy way to give to the needy, here's your chance. And it does not have to be my podcast that you review. It can be any podcast. Just download the Podchaser app or go to podchaser.com. And uh, this particular charity is aimed at people fleeing the Ukraine and providing them with much needed meals. 
Thank you for listening. Thank you for indulging me in my unhealthy obsession with Brushy Bill Roberts. If you like what you hear, please share this episode with somebody. I know you'd be out there Facebooking, so share this episode on Facebook. Email it to your friends. Send smoke signals. Something. All right, that's it for this week. Adios. Josh, you ignorant slut.